Let's read together in God's word, turning to Genesis chapter 50, and we read the whole of this chapter. End of chapter 49 records the death of Jacob, 147 years old, and then beginning of chapter 50, we read Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favour in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. Uh, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. And the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad. They said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mitzrayim, the mourning of the Egyptians. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, They said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And they reassured them. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, 
were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. In preparing sermons in any part of God's Word, the preacher makes use of commentaries, books by scholars who have particular gifts in expounding the Scripture's knowledge of the biblical languages and so on. And it would be a very arrogant preacher who didn't make use of the wisdom that God has given to his people. And yet the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. The best commentary on the Old Testament, Genesis for example, is the New Testament. Uh, And that's fundamental to our understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. Unlike the work of human authors, however skilled, however knowledgeable, uh, however good they are in expounding the word, the New Testament was written under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Not simply a merely human book, but a part of God's word. And so when we open the New Testament, it gives us infallible insights into the meaning intended by the authors of the Old Testament. And the ultimate author, of course, God himself. In the New Testament, really, God tells us what he was saying in the Old Testament. Spells it out in the full light of the coming of his Son. And so no better understanding of the Old Testament is possible than what the New Testament tells us. And so as we're thinking of the end of the book of Genesis, in Hebrews 11 and verse 22, we read this, By faith Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Joseph. And so we come this evening to the closing verses of Genesis 50. We're looking at verses 22 to 26. Joseph dies in faith. Joseph dies in faith. And what kind of faith is it? in which Joseph dies. Well, we see, first of all, uh, that it is faith in a God who promises. Faith in a God who promises. Joseph reasserts his conviction that Egypt is not the land of Israel's future. They're there, but they're there for a time. But this is not where they're going to be. God is going to bring them to Canaan. Of course, that theme has kept 
coming back. Uh, it keeps coming back right from uh, Abram onwards. Verse 24, uh, Joseph says, God will surely take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath. So God has given his commitment that Canaan is the land in which Israel will dwell. And so Joseph really is simply taking God at his word. And that promise of a home in Canaan is the heart of the record that begins right away back in Genesis chapter 12 when Abram is called to leave his homeland and go to a land that God would show him. And all the way from chapter 12 right through now uh, to chapter 50, uh, we've seen again and again the promise of Canaan, the promised land promised by God. And he will uh, ultimately uh, bring them into that land. Everything that has happened throughout Genesis from the call of Abram has that goal in view uh, that ultimately the purpose of God is being served by what happened to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph and to the brothers. It all serves that promised goal that Israel will be taken from Egypt, a temporary dwelling, to a permanent homeland in Canaan. So the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God who promises. And it's clear at the forefront of Joseph's thinking uh, at this point, uh, particularly is the promise of the land of Canaan. The promise of the land uh, was a part of God's covenant promise. It was something he would give them, and it was always emphasized to Israel, when you get the land, uh, it will not be because of your strength, your uh, size, your influence, your wisdom, anything about you. It's none of that will give you the land. It will be God's gift it comes as a result of his promise. And this is part of his covenant. And covenant is one of the great themes uh, that runs all the way through the Bible from Genesis right through to Revelation. It holds the, the Bible together. In one sense, it's a library of 66 books, but it's also one book. Uh, and one of the great themes of the book is God's covenant with his people. And we find covenant uh, constantly recurring uh, in the book uh, of Genesis. Uh, the first mention of it, we go right back to Genesis 17 uh, and verse 7. Here God comes uh, to Abram and he says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your seed after you to be your God. Genesis 17 and verse 7. And you see something we've sought to emphasize often as we've spoken about God's covenant. And the covenant fundamentally is God giving himself to his people. The emphasis is not on particular gifts that God gives, important as those are. But God gives himself. 
He is not like some parents who give all kinds of presents to their children but don't have time for them themselves. God gives himself in his covenant. Oh yes, in the covenant as we find it in the book of Genesis, there's the promise of the land, the land of Canaan. There's the promise of numerous descendants, like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore, you remember, as God said uh, to Abraham. Land and descendants are vitally important. But they're not the ultimate goal of God's covenant. The ultimate goal is God himself. Fellowship with God. That verse we often quote uh, when we speak about the covenant. Leviticus 26 and verse 12. I will walk among you and be your God. And you will be my people. God gives himself. And without God, then the land was meaningless. Numerous descendants are insignificant if they do not have God. That core blessing of the covenant, if we might call it that, is fellowship with God himself. That's what it's about. And the land is important, the descendants are important, but nothing compares with that Fellowship with God. He is their God. He gives himself to his people. And we're to enjoy the God of the covenant. That's why the first answer, the shorter catechism, is so profound. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's covenant. Enjoying God himself. Not just his blessings, not simply the things he gives us, but God himself. God makes his covenant, as we see in the book of Genesis, with succeeding generations. He began with Abram, his name changed to Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob, and again his name changed to Israel. And then it will continue through Judah, as we've seen. Not through Joseph, as we might expect, but through Judah. And then on, centuries later, to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, from the line of Judah. And that's how God works. He often delights to work in families. And you see that in Genesis that it's with one generation after another. And there is, of course, God's choice uh, of Jacob rather than Esau, for instance, uh, and of Judah instead of the other brothers, because God's always sovereign in his covenant. But ultimately, the Messiah is in view. This is all leading to the Lord Jesus Christ. We might say in human terms it takes a long time to get to him. But God knows how long is needed. And in God's eyes, of course, all those centuries between, let's say, Joseph and Jesus are a blink. They're nothing to the eternal God. But he's working out his covenant purpose. We've quoted from Hebrews 11, and there... So much of it really is a commentary on the Old Testament. It helps us to understand what's happening. 
In Hebrews 11, in verse 13, it says something very striking. We read there, all these people, this is Abraham and Jacob and so on, all these people were still living by faith when they died. In other words, none of them actually received what God had promised. First of all, none of them entered the land of Canaan, the promised land. It would be for later generations. But in fact, as Hebrews 11 tells us, something we might not have otherwise suspected or guessed, in fact, all of these men of faith were looking forward to something more than Canaan. We tend to think the one thing they looked forward to was this piece of territory, Canaan. But actually, Hebrews 11 tells us that they were looking, in the end, for something greater than Canaan, something different. They were looking, we are told, for a spiritual country. Not a piece of land on earth, but a spiritual country. We read there in Hebrews 11, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Hebrews eleven sixteen. In many respects, that's an amazing statement. Think of how little these men knew of the ways of God. This is very early in human history, very early in the unfolding of God's revelation, so much they didn't yet know, but they were still able to look beyond an earthly state, an earthly country, to a heavenly country. God's grace was working in their hearts. That's the explanation for it. God was at work in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph and Judah and the others. Because now we know, in the full light of the New Testament, that what God's people look to and hope for is, first of all, salvation. As a part of that, the glories of heaven when we die. And beyond that, the wonders of the new creation when Jesus comes back. In the end, that is the heavenly country that God's people look forward to. That's the heavenly country that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the others looked forward to. Now, most of it they didn't understand. We're not suggesting uh, that these men knew about Christ and what he would do uh, and the blessing of a new creation, but they knew enough to trust God that he had more for them than this life. And he had more for them even than the land of Canaan. There was something better and something greater. And by faith they held on to that and now in heaven they understand it so much better. They understand what it was they were looking forward to. But by God's grace they were men of faith and they held on to the promises and they understood the promise isn't just a territory in the Middle East, in Canaan. It is something richer and greater. What it is, they couldn't have told you. They couldn't have explained it, but 
Now they know. Joseph dies in faith, faith in a God who promises. And promise is essential to the covenant, what God says he will do for his people. Faith in a God who promises. But secondly, Joseph dies in faith. Faith in a God who rules. Faith in a God who rules. It's one thing to promise, it's another thing to fulfill. We've all made promises that we weren't able to keep, that circumstances changed. We've had promises made to us that couldn't be kept. That's the way life is in this world. But the God who promises in his covenant is the God who is able to fulfill. And that's because he is the God who rules. He's a sovereign God. And in Joseph's words here, we have a very clear testimony to his belief in the sovereignty of God. Now, we already know, of course, that Jacob believed in the sovereignty of God. We thought about that in verse 20 last time. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. The God in whom Joseph believes is a sovereign God. God who overrules even the sins of men to accomplish his purpose. God's sovereign and Joseph knows that. And in particular, as he thinks of the promise of Canaan, the outworking of God's covenant with his people, he believes that God will be able to keep the promise. And so in verse 24, he says, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up. It's the hope of the Exodus. God will come, he will deliver the Israelites and take them to the land of promise. And the original Hebrew of that verse really makes it very clear. These are words of certainty. NIV catches a sense of what Joseph says. God will surely come. And the grammatical structure that is used there emphasizes the certainty of what is going to happen. God will assuredly come. There is no possibility that the promise will fail. The certainty in Joseph's heart and mind that the promised events, the taking of Israel up out of Egypt into Canaan, will come to pass. You can see in what he says, he entertains uh, no doubt about it. There's no sense of, well, we hope God will come and take you up to Canaan. Or we're, we're, we're fairly sure that he will. No, it's absolute certainty. God will come. It refers to the future, and yet... Joseph knows he's speaking about things that are certainly going to take place in God's time. A sovereign God. And on the basis of God's sovereignty and his ability to keep his promise that Joseph speaks these words. Again, they're words of of faith in the God who's revealed himself thus far to his people. It's very interesting when Moses goes down 
to Egypt to speak to the elders of Israel. preparing the way for the Exodus in the book of Exodus. And he comes to the elders of Israel in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3.16, these are the words God tells Moses to pass on to the elders of Israel. God says, the translation, the NIV, I have watched over you. Now, you wouldn't perhaps immediately pick up that that verb there actually is the same as the one that Joseph has used when he's speaking to his brothers. Exactly the same. God is going to come. And Moses says, God says to you, I have come. Very obviously linking the two. The fulfillment with Moses' arrival in Egypt to lead Israel out to the promised land. God is keeping his word. And with Moses, that's the next stage of the fulfillment. The God who reveals himself in the Bible from start to finish is a sovereign God. He is the God who rules. We want to put it in New Testament terms. Paul describes God in this way. Ephesians 1 and verse 11, Paul writes of the God who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. It is a very uh, clear statement of the sovereignty of God. And as we saw uh, last week when we were thinking about God overruling the evil of Joseph's brothers, the supreme example of God working things out according to the counsel of his will is really in the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was at the hands of evil men. What Herod, Pilate, the Roman authorities uh, did was evil. And yet God worked it out for good. And in everything, in, you might say, the big things, in the affairs of nations, and in the details of our daily lives. This God who rules works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Things are not random. They are not without rhyme or reason. We may not be able to discern the, the reason and why God's doing this or doing it this way. But we know that he is doing it according to the purpose of his will. And it is serving his good and perfect purpose. Nothing that God wills in his decree will fail, can fail, to come to pass. And that is a tremendous comfort. To know that every one of God's promises will be fulfilled. Now how he does that sometimes may surprise us. It might not be in the way we anticipated, but they will all be fulfilled. Hence we read in Numbers 23, 19. It's in the lips of, of Balaam, that strange character who had to speak what God gave him to speak. He had no option. And there in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he spoken? Will he not do it? Does he promise and not fulfill? 
And the answers to those questions are obvious. Of course not. God does not promise a not fulfill. All he promises will be fulfilled. And his great covenant that we are thinking of here in Genesis, the covenant that will lead to Christ and to his life, death, and resurrection, that cannot fail. And the promises that God has made cannot fail. All the blessings of God's covenant will be supplied, including whatever we need all the way through life. As we think here of Joseph as he comes to the end of life, on the brink of death, among the blessings of this sovereign promising God will be the grace that is needed to pass through that experience of death. The last enemy. Death is always an enemy. And yet this God who rules and who promises will supply the grace his children need. They will be able to pass through death because the Messiah has conquered death. Death is a defeated enemy. He's removed the sting of death from his people. And so the people of God can come to the allotted end of life in the assurance that this is not an accident. This is still within the purpose of God. And whatever's needed, and sometimes we know we've seen it, sometimes it needs a lot of grace. And yet that grace will be provided. It's part of the promised covenant mercies of the God who rules. So Joseph dies in faith. Faith in a God who promises. Faith also in a God who rules. And then finally, as Joseph dies in faith, it is faith in a God who delivers. A God who delivers. When Joseph speaks of the future that the Lord has prepared for Israel, he uses a very significant verb. Literally, we could translate it, verse 24 and again in verse 25, God will surely visit you and take you up. He will visit you. NIV has, he will come to your aid. And that's quite a correct translation. But God will visit you. And when God visits someone, in particular when God visits his people, it's in order to take action. It is to do something for them. Now, we visit Uh, We're not necessarily expecting to be doing anything other than enjoying perhaps conversation, perhaps a bite to eat. We visit people. Uh, Indeed, our brothers and sisters across the Atlantic talk about visiting with somebody if they popped in for five minutes and they visited with you. Uh, But you get used to that way of speaking. But it's very different when God visits. When God visits, he does something Meaningful, something significant. 
And that's exactly the significance of the word here. God will visit the Israelites. And he'll not sit and chat with them. He'll visit them and take you up. The Exodus, he will liberate them from Egypt. And this will be something much more than Israel deciding to migrate back to the territory that they came from. It's very clear what the significance of this is. He will take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Much more than simply the migration of a confederation of tribes. It is God taking his people out of Egypt. Now if you look ahead a very short distance to Exodus chapter 1, you'll see how the circumstances of Israel changed. Perhaps to some degree, uh, Joseph may have seen some of this coming in due course once he was gone. And what you see there is a pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. And there is oppression, the the making bricks without straw, the slave labor, the attempts to have the firstborn, or to have all the sons, in fact, of Israel killed, were it not for the intervention of the, the faithful, godly midwives of Israel. But it's oppression, it's bondage. And it's out of that that God is going to take his people and bring them to the land of Canaan. The multiplication of the Israelites and their prosperity means that they become a threat in the eyes of the Egyptians. The Egyptians were never that keen on foreigners anyway. But in Joseph's account, then the land of Goshen is provided. Once Joseph is gone, things very quickly will go downhill. And Egypt will become a place of hardship, of suffering, of oppression. And it's out of that that God will bring his people. His visiting them in Egypt will be in order to deliver them from that bondage and take them now to their own land, to the land of promise. That's the significance of God visiting them. And so in Exodus 6, 6, Uh, For example, God says through Moses, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. No longer is Egypt a place of refuge from famine. Egypt now has become a yoke that oppresses and weighs down on the Israelites. And when God visits them, he's going to take them out of that, out from under the yoke and out to the land he's promised to their forefathers generation after generation. And as Hebrews 11, we read at the very beginning, says, Joseph was speaking about the Exodus. And that Exodus, that leading out from bondage, great event in the history of Israel. They kept looking back to the Exodus. That's our origins, they would say to themselves. That's when God in a special way, took us to be his people. The Exodus foreshadows a greater deliverance. The Exodus was a wonderful thing, but something far greater was planned by God than taking thousands of people out of Egypt. 
It was a foreshadowing of a deliverance that would be accomplished by the one at the end of the line of promise, the Messiah, Jesus. That's the exodus towards which God is leading his people. Maybe centuries after these events, but that is where God is taking them. And that is why on the mountain of transfiguration, when the Lord Jesus was speaking to Moses and Elijah, and he was talking about his death that was not very far in the future, we are told in the language of Luke 9.31, he talked about his exodus, which he was going to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Notice that. that Jesus describes his death and resurrection as his exodus. And that's where this, in the end, is pointing. And to the book of Exodus, great importance for Israel. But they point to a far greater deliverance, what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished. Deliverance from sin, that constitutes us as a covenant people of God. See, there were many who went out of Egypt with the Israelites who were not people of faith. And they were a constant thorn in Moses' side. You remember how often we're told about the Israelites grumbled and the people with them grumbled. They caused them trouble. They had no faith. They had no trust in God. But those who share in the exodus of Jesus are saved. Our sins are forgiven. We have new life. We become children of God. It's the Lord Jesus in his exodus that secures admission for you and me to the heavenly country. That's why we have a share in the heavenly country. That's why we are saved. It's because of the exodus the leading out from bondage, the deliverance that Jesus has provided as he died and rose again for us. And so as we come to the end of Genesis again, we must see Christ. We must see the Messiah and the work that he will come to do. All those generations from Judah, traced in the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, all the way to Jesus, because he is the one who provides the true exodus. And our hope and our trust must be in him. And it was for Joseph. Joseph dies in faith. And a visible token of that faith was the fact that his bones were waiting. Waiting in Egypt until they would be taken to the land of promise. Joseph was saying, I don't belong here any more than the rest of you do. I belong in Canaan. Now they'd taken Jacob home, buried him in Canaan. Perhaps that wasn't a possibility for Joseph. But he made sure his bones would be taken to Canaan. And indeed, when you turn to the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua 24 and verse 32, the bones of Joseph were buried in Canaan at Shechem. 
portion of ground that Jacob had given him. It was a statement of his faith. He trusted that God would keep his word and he would be buried in the land of promise. And he was. Joseph died in faith. And isn't that the manner in which every child of God would want to face the end and to die in faith? And by God's grace, those who truly are his children will die in faith. For some, it seems an easy passage. For some, it seems to mean tremendous struggle. It can be difficult. And yet God gives the grace. And as people die in faith, and join Joseph and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all who've gone before, waiting till the fullness of the heavenly country is provided.